Hey everyone, Maria here. Before we dive into today's episode, I just want to quickly share an exciting announcement with everyone. On the 14th and 15th of June this year, I'm going to be in Pennsylvania at Home Delivery World USA, the premier conference and exhibition for retail logistics. Not only will I be chairing the event, but I'm also going to be joined on stage by Keelan Evans, who is the VP of Sustainability at Macy's. Keelan and I will be having a fireside chat on how to navigate the journey of implementing sustainable solutions in the supply chain. And I have to say that I'm really looking forward to this year's edition of Home Delivery World USA with over 5,000 attendees, 250 speakers, and 350 exhibitors. This is the one event you don't want to miss. For more information on the speaker lineup and to secure your ticket, be sure to head over to Terrapin, that's T-E-R-R-A-P-I-N-N, dot com forward slash conference forward slash home dash delivery dash world. I look forward to seeing you there. So I mean, you get less burnout, of course, if people are happy. So you just don't have similar problems. You also get much greater commitment. Um, so, so when you need when you need a bit of help, when you've got a spike in activity, for instance, someone that hates their job is not happy to do that. In doing it, they're more likely to burn out, and you're not going to get fantastic productivity out of them. Um, when we need that kind of help, our staff want to help, and they feel valued. They, they feel rewarded um, for helping out. No, nothing feels, to me, I think, and, and certainly I'm experiencing this throughout the business, nothing feels better than when a team has a challenge and that team pulls together. It's exciting. Um, it's almost like, it's, it's like, it's like in a very small way, it's like being you know, in a battle of some kind. And, and success is to finish together with a sense that you pulled together and you made it happen. Very few businesses are able to achieve that in the operational. You're listening to Transform Talks, the podcast about global supply chain transformation. I'm Maria Villablanca, co-founder and CEO of Future Insights Network, a fast-growing network of over 130,000 supply chain and manufacturing executives worldwide. Now on this show, I'm going to be interviewing and having conversations with some of the biggest names in supply chain and business, where we're going to be discussing topics around digitization, transformation, leadership, technology, business models, diversity, sustainability, and much, much more. Welcome back to Transform Talks. I've got a really interesting guest this week, and I know that you'll enjoy it. Martin Bish is the co-founder and CEO of Hubu, an award-winning order fulfillment service for e-commerce sellers. Now, the company Hubu first popped on my radar last year, and since then I've been very eager to speak with someone from the company. You see, Hubu is truly fascinating, not only because of their impressive and rapid growth rate since their launch in 2017, which, by the way, has seen them ship an average of 5 million packages a year, but more importantly, because the company has been able to achieve this tremendous growth whilst implementing the type of culture that is rarely seen in fulfillment and logistics centers. Martin and his team have really been able to take a different approach, and it shows. As I go on to learn during this episode, Hubu is currently operating at a 1% churn rate, which, as some of you might know, is virtually unheard of in this space. So I wanted to invite Martin onto the show to discuss how Hubu has been able to balance rapid growth, profit margins, and staff retention during such a disruptive period over the last few years. There are certainly some lessons here. I hope you enjoy. Hey, Martin. Nice to see you, and welcome to Transform Talks. Hi, Maria. Thanks very much. It's great to be on your podcast. Great. 
So I've got a lot of questions. I know we're going to cover a lot of ground and you've got a really interesting background and maybe I want to take you all the way back to sort of uh, maybe a long time ago, depending on your age. So uh, from what I hear, you left school at about 15 to program your first computer game and uh, it reached like number two in the European charts at one point. So I'm, I'm only bringing this up because I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, some of the new supply chain simulation games that are out there, such as Transport Fever, Rise of Industry, and Constru Constructor Plus. Now, have you ever played them? And do you think that they actually uh, do a good job of showcasing just how difficult logistics can be? I've not played them all, um, and I love any game that's about an industry that I'm in. Uh, my son was playing uh, a game where he could actually run his own computer games business, and of course that's what I was doing before, so I thought that was um, huge fun. I think it's great they focus on, on a section of the world that most people wouldn't be aware of. It disguises, I think, rather than exposes the complexity necessarily. Um, and it tends to look at how these things are done traditionally. We don't do anything traditionally in our business, for instance. So none of those games reflect the sorts of things that we do. They're at a sort of more of a, a macro level. Very exciting to have our world you know, turned into sort of, you know, popular, uh, popular media. Before we talk about your company, I want to... I want focus on something that you said, because um, we have a big skills gap in the supply chain logistics industry. So do you think that sort of gamification and highlighting the, um, the interesting aspect of this industry is something that could help bring younger generations into working in, in traditionally, say maybe industrial roles? I think there's lots of things that need to be done to achieve that. Um, I think games and simulations in this space um, will definitely uh, you know, kind of inspire the imagination of younger people, so that has to be a good thing. Um, we, we've um, used such tools ourselves, so we built a hub simulation. The hub is the methodology for our micro warehouse. And we built the full simulation, full, fully immersive um, simulation, where you can be a hub manager with you know, goggles on in a virtual reality world. We use it mostly at show, so people can experience what it is to do the job, and we've made it sort of competitive. We're trying to get to list on Steam for free, but apparently you can't do that if it has branding on there, because we thought that would be quite a fun way to, to spread the word. Um, so I think these tools all help. I think there are lots of other problems. Um, you don't find operations reflected very well in academia. It isn't something you can study in, in too many places. I think that's a problem. We hire a lot of um, STEM graduates, so, so we have a, a, a role, we call it process engineer, and it's typically people that have a first um, in a STEM subject, and we let them do whatever they like in the business for six months and sort of find a role. And that's worked really well for us. But they don't come to us with any operational experience or, or, or even, even academic um, experience uh, of operations. That's at the sort of, I guess, at the higher, more engineering kind of uh, level. Beneath that, I think the challenges are much broader, and they're things like pay quality of, of, of work. I mean, there's a massive problem in procurement, of course, with churning warehouses because the jobs are, are so very, very poor. So I think there's a lot we can do within the industry um, to improve um, the jobs. And of course, people don't want to work in industries that, um, that have awful jobs, even if they're at a higher level, even if they're being paid more and have better conditions, they don't want to work in that industry. Well, it, I think the pandemic really showed us that, you know, I, I think the pandemic really was a way for people to get out a catalyst to get out of jobs that were maybe unfulfilling, underpaid, etc. And so new jobs are being created. You, you just mentioned churn. And I know I was reading up my notes that something that you told uh, my producer was that you are currently operating at a 1% churn rate, which, you know, in this industry is kind of unheard of. So how did you achieve that? And 
you know, what's behind that? Yeah, so it's slightly more than one percent, but it's basically it's basically the same as we have in the office. So um, and everyone will know that in fulfillment companies, it's not unusual to have you know fifteen percent monthly churn rate. Um, which is horrifying. Imagine if you worked in an office where 15 of the 100 people in the office you know, just disappeared every month. You'd live in, in a state of terror. Um, and that, that's the situation in fulfillment. It's for a number of reasons. And partly it is sort of deliberate or a direct byproduct of, of deliberate activities. As you, as you make the jobs more awful, as you reduce them down to ever more repetitive tasks that require no training, um, tasks really fit only for machines, um, then of course you, you increase churn. You, you know, it results in jobs that are just not jobs that human beings want to do, or, or I would argue can do for very long without being you know, driven mad. Um, you end up with unhappy people, which also reduces productivity further, of course, because of the churn. You can't train people, and that results in, in you in a downward spiral. It results in you looking to simplify the job further, so that you can just bring people in and they can become immediately useful. And so I think the industry is trapped in this downward spiral of massive churn, complete absence of any kind of training or innovation around the role. And it's just, it's, it's creating a very bad reputation. It's created a very bad reputation in this space. And companies like Amazon take a lot of flack, but actually they're, they're not doing anything any differently to anybody else, really. I mean, it's just that they're the big brands. So they attract, you know, they attract a negative attention. The reality is the whole space behaves that way to its employees. With, with as far as I can tell, one exception, which is Habu. The reason I think we are the only exception is because the only way you can fix this problem is to do it from the ground up. And of course, existing players aren't going to do that. Most modern entrants into this space are what are called asset-like companies, but they're really software companies that are outsourcing the back end. So they have no, no, no control over what happens in the warehouses. Yeah. Um, and so when we looked at this about five years ago now, we tried to understand all of the problems that, that the industry faces and solve those problems. We were starting from scratch, so we could. Um, and so the first thing we looked at was how we could create warehouse operations that were actually, um, that, that gave employees a sense of ownership, which I think is key. It's, it's, it's really feeling as if, you know, you are responsible for something and to somebody, to the client, that makes you, you feel valued in that space. The challenge is that in order to do that, this is what we discovered, you couldn't really do it with existing software. And most fulfillment companies um, don't create their own software. They use vendors, anything between 10 and 15 vendors for their software. And so they're operations are dictated by that software. And to get those software companies to change what they do when they might have 100 clients, it's obviously a massive challenge. So that was the point at which we decided to vertically integrate all software in the space to allow us then to completely reconfigure operations around the new, the new micro warehousing hub model, which was not my idea, it was uh, Paul Dog, my co-founder's idea. And it made, um, it made the hub manager, which is the, the, the sort of the, the, the basic job in the warehouse, not, not a picker, not a packer, but a hub manager. Um, it gave the hub manager a reason to care about what they do. So in a nutshell, um, a hub is a micro warehouse. It will take a larger warehouse, divide it up into these micro warehouses. That micro warehouse will house anything from one large client to about 20 small clients. Anything between one and a handful of hub managers will run that space, doing the inbound, the outbound, the picking, the packing, the posting. But actually, crucially, the first line of support. So um, the, the sort of lowest, lowest paid job, if you like, in our, in our warehouse still um, works directly with clients. And so they have that sense that what they're doing is valued. And clients will let them know if something's going wrong, but they'll be just as keen to let them know, if not keener, when something is going well. And it's that positive feedback that I think makes the job worth doing in a way that traditionally these sorts of jobs are. And I'll give you just one example. 
and this is the, there are many examples like this, but we have a fabulous client called Vintage Cash Cow, which is a WooCommerce client. No one really works with WooCommerce because it's phenomenally difficult. That's one of the other things we did was to iron out the difficulty of working with such clients. Um, they actually came down a couple of months ago to take their eight hub managers out for dinner. So it's impossible to imagine people you know, driving up to an Amazon. I don't want to keep picking on Amazon because it says not doing anything differently to anybody else. But there's just a big warehouse that, that does things similarly to a lot of the big warehouses. And it's impossible to imagine a company, you know, kind of arriving at the door saying, can we take eight of your pickers out for dinner? It just, it just wouldn't happen. So it's that, it's that sense of ownership and the connection between the client and the, the people that actually do the operational piece that I think uh, is a big part of why, why the jobs are, are exciting, why they, why they create a sense of ownership, um, why, why people are, are more productive when they work for us and why they stay in their roles. You know, that is a huge part of the puzzle. I, you know, I would say it is a gigantic part of the puzzle that most organizations are not doing. You're absolutely right. Uh, one of the things that I like to say on my podcast is we need to unlearn certain corporate behaviors, certain operational behaviors, because they don't, they're not going to survive or they haven't survived into this new kind of world that we live in full of crisis. But there is also something else that's a piece of the puzzle. There is a huge amount of burnout in the supply chain and logistics space, operational space, because of it, you know, really crazy demand issues, really crazy supply issues, the whole uh, economic crisis that's happening. There's a whole lot of elements that are unpredictable um, that are causing a strain on fulfillment centers, whether it's, as I said, increased demand caused by, uh, I don't know, hoarding or the bullwhip effect, whatever you want to call it. So how do you deal with that burnout uh, as well as with the, um, you know, the other piece of the, the puzzle that we just talked about, which is um, doing things right? So, I mean, you get less burnout, of course, if people are happy. So you just don't have similar problems. You also get much greater commitment. Um, so so when, you need, when you need a bit of help, when you've got a spike in activity, for instance, someone that hates their job is not happy to do that. In doing it, they're more likely to burn out, and you're not going to get fantastic productivity out of them. Um, when we need that kind of help, our staff want to help, and they feel valued. They they feel rewarded um, for helping out. No, nothing feels to me, I think, and certainly I'm experiencing this throughout the business. Nothing feels better than when a team has a challenge and that team pulls together. It's exciting. Um, it's almost like it's like it's like in a very small way. It's like being you know in a battle of some kind, and and success is to finish together with a sense that you pulled together and you made it happen. Very few businesses are able to achieve that in the operational space. You get that in, I mean, I used to be a games coder, as I mentioned, and we, you know, we would have terrible crunch periods when we were programming large computer games, where, where for months the team would have to pull together and do that. And burnout was common, but it was possible to achieve that sense of pulling together to, to do something amazing. Very difficult to do that in a standard operational setting. What we've done is establish circumstances where, where we can do that. What we, what we also do is a, a really challenging period like Christmas. Um, we'll, get, we'll get people from around the office to work in the warehouse as well. Even if it's not necessary, even if we could bring in temporary staff, we wanted to avoid any kind of them and us mentality, any sort of upstairs, downstairs mentality, which is another problem that seeps into businesses like ours. So everybody who joins the business has to train as a hub manager before they do anything else. So we just, we just, hired, we just hired a new CCO who's phenomenal. Her first week was spent in the warehouses learning how to be a hub manager. And then over Christmas, she spent some days picking, packing, and posting along with everybody else. So we make sure that that sense that we're all pulling together um, is transmitted across the entire business. 
and that it's real, that we're down there, you know, kind of doing the job when, 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 when it's necessary to do so. You know, th- that's another really key point that you just mentioned. We had a guest here who, or I can't remember if it was one of my guests on the podcast or just a conversation I was having, who said that they, it's a big, big company, um, I, I won't name it, but basically what they did is that they s- did a survey within the entire organization to see if people could understand what supply chain was uh, or, op- or business operations, what exactly was involved in that. And the majority of their employees had no idea. So this thing that seeps into business of them and us, like you say, it also creates a lot of havoc. It creates silos. It creates uh, people going in different directions, fulfilling different objectives. Um, so... I, I really am glad that you brought up that point and that it's something that is um, it, you look out for. Now, here's the question. Here's the key. How do you get an organization like the likes of these major Fortune 500s or maybe large businesses that have, I mean, legacy systems and legacy processes? What's the first step? Is it mindset? Is it top down? Well, it's only mindset. I mean, if you don't if you don't want to make this work, you're not going to because it would be really difficult. It was incredibly difficult to build this from the ground up and to get it to work. I would say it took about three years to make this model work, where, where we really had a um, the kind of quality that we wanted. Um, the challenge when you're doing it top down in a business that, that well, it has a day job. How do you how do you do this whilst it does its day job? Although honestly, I'm not I'm not sure that you can easily. I think you might have to do it piecemeal, building entirely new warehouses implementing new processes and gradually migrating over to them whilst you continue to run the day-to-day processes. Because the two won't coexist. Um, what you can't do is take a handful of the staff and give them a great job whilst everybody around sort of flounders and suffers. So I don't really have the answer for that. Our, our conclusion was that it needed to be it needed to be from the ground up or it was simply going to be too too difficult to achieve. Now, that doesn't mean people shouldn't try to because I think there's a there's a moral obligation to try to create decent jobs for people, and the fulfillment industry isn't doing that. But I would also argue there's an economic obligation. They're running businesses. They have an obligation to shareholders. And when I look at when I look at the margins that we're capable of, it is for various reasons. But the, the single largest reason is the cost of staff. If we aren't churning at 15 to 30 percent, we aren't expending vast amounts of money constantly hiring. We aren't filling the warehouse with temporary staff that can cost as much as 60 percent more. We get typically 20 to 25% greater productivity out of happy people that are expert because they've been in the role for, for you know, a number of months or years, which again is typically not the case in other warehouses. So I think there is that moral obligation, but even if that's not something that concerns them, there's a massive economic obligation to shareholders you know, and to themselves to make that work. I do think it will be difficult. It will take tremendous commitment. So, so to sort of start where, where, where you ended your question, where I began my answer, it's got to begin with that mindset that requires complete conviction. We have to make this work because it's going to be tough. You know, funnily enough, you went straight into what was going to be my next question, which is wearing my cynical hat, right? Wearing my uh, maybe economic. I mean, I'm, I'm a business person, right? So I'm not a supply chain operator. So wearing my business CFO slash, slash cynical hat, what are the benefits? And you just highlighted them as uh, you're seeing profit margins, you're seeing uh, you know a great deal of efficiency. But I, I would add another one, probably this kind of environment that you've created is quite agile and resilient as well. That's key as well. We have people that want to learn, people that are happy to do something differently. And if you get someone that's very unhappy and does a monotonous job, typically you're not going to be able to move them on to something else to do something different. You can't demand that of them, given how you treat them. So it creates a very agile business, but it delivers layers of cost savings. Um, they're not all 
implicit in simply improving the job. What we did was not just try to improve jobs, but try to do it in a way that delivered additional value. So that first line of support, there is now the role of what would be a picker in another organization, what is a hub manager in ours, that's a huge cost in most businesses, and it's usually centralized. And that creates additional costs because the, the, the centralized uh, you know, customer service person doesn't have the answer. So, so what they have to do is to investigate that matter, to reach out, probably eventually making their way to the warehouse, getting an answer, whether they do it directly or via other people, taking that answer back, perhaps only to discover that that really doesn't answer the question, and then they start the whole process again. Here, the customer gets to reach out to the person that is the expert in their goods, the expert in that particular client. But most importantly, because this is where most um, CS requests come from, he's, he or she is the expert in uh, the transaction. And so when client X says what happened to transaction Y or don't do this with transaction Z, it's almost the person that can make that happen or that knows the answer to the question. So you've compressed tiers of support, expensive support, and also support that delays getting an answer to the client, so frustrating support. You've compressed that down uh, to a point where you can simply give the answer immediately and it's the right answer. And that's a, that's a massive cost saving, but it also increases retention. So, so um, the magic 1% is also the churn rate of clients for us, which again is extraordinary in, in a fulfillment. And we have about 1,400 clients, so we have a lot of clients in the fulfillment business. And it's because of things like that. It's because when they ask a question, they get an answer and they get it from the expert. And the expert is not some engineer or some CS person sitting miles away from the warehouse, possibly in another country. The expert is the picker, the packer, the poster, the hub manager, the person that performed that transaction. So I think there are tiers of potential savings. And I'll, I'll add just one last um, thing to that. In getting it right, you also build transparency throughout the business. And that solves some of the other problems that you mentioned. It, it allows people that are in the warehouse to understand how logistics work, how the entire business works, to, you know, to have a, a better sense that they, they're, not, they're not just a cog in a machine that means nothing to them, but actually they're, they're a key part of that machine. They understand how and why, crucially, that machine does what it does. You know what? I think if companies don't embrace this type of uh, behavior with their people, they're not going to succeed with digital transformation, with building resilience, and with uh, profit margins. But equally, and I guess probably more important, this next iteration of business operations that we're living in right now in a world full of crisis. Um, now, we've kind of reached time, and um, but I do have one more question, and it's a question that I ask everyone who uh, comes onto the podcast, and uh, which is, okay, let's talk, let's talk about a book. Is there any book that you've read, whether it's a fiction, personal book, a business book that has made an impact on your life? And uh, what is it? I'm a voracious reader, so the challenge was to narrow it down to, you know, 100, let alone one. Well, one, I, one I love from a business point of view, and it's not a business book, um, it's, it's called The Righteous Mind, and it's by Jonathan Haidt. Um, and it, it's a psychological book, and I think if you're in business and if you're, you know, if you're working with people and you have people working for you, it's vital that you understand what makes people tick. Um, and I, I think it's probably the closest recent book to to, um, to getting us to a point where we understand how the mind works. It's all the half back to, to Hume, the famous Scottish philosopher, um, who believed that that um, our emotions were 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 um, our rationality was a slave to our emotions. And I don't think it's quite as simple as that, but, but what we certainly are is simply rational actors. And, and um, so um, Jonathan Heights is a sort of modernization of that based on huge amounts of research, but I think gives tremendous insight into, into ourselves 
and the people around us. And that's always of immense value uh, in life, but of course also in business. Martin, I want to thank you for sharing your story, for giving us great insight. I think there's some practical, valuable uh, information here that people can take back to their, to their businesses. So thanks for being here on Transform Talks. Thanks, Maria. It was my pleasure. So that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. I do hope you gained some valuable insight from this week's episode. To stay up to date with the latest developments, be sure to follow us on LinkedIn at Transform Talks. Also, if you don't already follow me on LinkedIn, please do so now. I'm always keen to connect with supply chain and business leaders from around the world. You can find me by searching for Maria P. Villablanca. And if you're lucky, I may let you know what the P in my name stands for. In the meantime, wishing you a great week ahead. And as always, for those of you listening, I'll catch you at the next one.